So some of you guys might be like wondering, hey, that's not Chris. No, I'm not Chris. I'm a, I'm a little bit taller. Um, don't have nearly the same amount of experience and not quite as polished, but uh, I just ask that you guys would give me a little bit of grace today because this is actually my first time preaching on a Sunday morning. Well, I guess actually like maybe like an hour ago was my first time, so you're my second time. <laughs> but no, I'm really excited to be here and I'm really honored to have this opportunity and um, I've just had such a joy being the summer intern, being able to shadow Pastor Chris, Ken and Trevor and um, really just seeing the godly men you guys have at this church. Just the fact that they've given me this opportunity to preach on a Sunday morning um, shows the humility they have to kind of give me the reins for having the pulpit. I mean, I can say all sorts of stuff, Trevor. You don't know what I might say. Um, but no, I'm really excited to be here, and it's been a true joy, and I know the Lord's placed me here this summer, and um, I've really enjoyed getting to know you guys. You guys are a wonderful community and a very healthy church, and, and it's really encouraging to me. So I know some of you guys... Um, saw my roommate up here leading worship. I just wanted to thank him and recognize him. Uh, we've been roommates for about a year, and we've done a lot of ministry together at Moody, and it's kind of fun having that partner in Christ kind of going side by side with you, um, as you're both seeking kind of the same thing. And so I'm really glad that he was able to be here today, and Chris was thrilled that he was able to come out, and he thought that was fun. So it's kind of a Moody takeover of Kent City Baptist in a sense. Um, sorry, Ken. I know, you know you, love, you're, you love Cedarville. Um, and then... I also want to thank my parents for coming out today. They drove seven and a half hours for me, and that's a huge thing. And I also just want to recognize that if it really wasn't for my parents and them correcting me throughout my entire childhood, I probably wouldn't be here today. Um, and I'm just really thrilled that they're able to make it. I have kind of a little bit of a story where, um, as a kid, I was just super smiley. Like, I smiled all the time. I always had a big smile on my face. And I would mumble my words all the time because I just always wanted to smile. So my parents would say, Scott, like, stop, slow down, hold off, stop smiling, okay, now, now tell us what you want, tell us what you need. And so they really kind of hammered into me, like, you can't mumble, people need to understand you. So if you can understand me today, you can thank my parents, and if I mumble, then you can, you can blame it on them too, okay? <laughs> so before I jump into the text, I kind of want to just um, give you guys a little bit of context, a little set the scene, a little bit of a roadmap. But before I do that, I just want to go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to come here and do my internship this summer and, and just meet this wonderful community, Lord, that loves you. Father, I pray that you would just speak through me today. Let your spirit fill me. Lord, I pray that this would be your truth and not my truth, that Christ would be magnified in everything that I say and do, and that I would just represent the scripture well and accurately, Lord. Father, I just thank you for everyone here. I pray that you prepare their hearts to receive. And Lord, I pray that you prepare my heart to be a vessel for you. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity, and I'm honored to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, kind of as I was saying, I wanted to kind of look at this roadmap or maybe set the scene. So, here we have Jesus in the courtyard of the temple. So, there's a lot of Jews around. There's a lot of just kind of lay people. But there's also a lot of religious leaders, and we'll see some political figures come in as well. And in some ways, we kind of get to be the crowd in a sense. We kind of just get a peek in on Jesus' dispute and debates with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we kind of get to be the crowd here, and it's a lot of fun. So there's about four, four parts or four accounts here. We're going to go through a political argument, which is really interesting because we're going to talk about paying taxes because one of the Pharisees asked, hey, Jesus... 
It's a right to pay taxes. Then second, we're going to go through a theological argument. So we have the Sadducees coming in and asking Jesus, hey, is there a resurrection from the dead? And if so, how? Thirdly, we're going to see Jesus' reply to a question that is, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest law? What's the best law? And then fourthly, we're going to see Jesus kind of flip it on his head, and he's going to ask a question finally. And we're going to see how he kind of stumps them, and it's really kind of fun to see that. So for me to start, I want to just kind of give a disclaimer. There's a lot in here. I have from, let's see, I'm in the wrong passage. I have um, Matthew 22, 15 through 46. So there's a ton in here. If I had it my way, I'd probably preach on every single section, but it being as it is, I can't. And so let's try to jump through in here and kind of um, just, just kind of pick out what we need to to find the truth. So that being said, let's go into verse 15. It says, When the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested, they said, some, they sent some of their disciples, along with the supporters of Herod, to meet with him. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and don't play favorites. Now tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin used for the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, Whose picture and title is stamped on it? Caesar, they replied. Well then, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply amazed them and they went away. Okay, so there's a lot in here and there's a lot of context we have to understand to understand this. So what does Jesus mean when he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God? Well, we kind of need to understand Who's asking the question, why they're asking the question, and how they're asking the question? Well, as we look at this, we have the Pharisees and the Herodians. My text says Herod's supporters. And they're not really coming in with a genuine question. They're coming in to trap Jesus or arrest him. So their motives were evil, not like, hey, Jesus, we really actually want to know your answer. It's like, hey, just trip up so we can arrest you and get rid of you, right? Interesting enough, they kind of butter him up. They say, hey, teacher, we recognize that you're a teacher. You're honest. You teach the way of God truthfully. You're impartial, and you don't play favorites. They're really kind of buttering up to just tear him down. Everything they say here, though, is true. Jesus was all those things. I think it's kind of funny that they recognize it. So who are the Pharisees and who are the Herodians? Well, they're kind of an interesting bag because here we have the Pharisees who are religious leaders, and they kept the law and they worked in the temples. And we have the Herodians who were Herod's supporters and they were kind of more political figures and they didn't usually get along. The Pharisees and Herodians were kind of butted heads all the time because they had different interests. The Pharisees wanted to keep the law and wanted to keep the temple well and the Herodians were really interested in their tax and they were interested in their own wealth and the state. And the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't get along. But they were unified over one thing and that was their disdain for Jesus. They both thought, hey, this guy's rocking the boat. We got to get him out of here. He's jeopardizing not only my position and my power, but yours as well. So let's trap him. So how will we trap him? Well, let's ask a plan. Let's ask this question that 
whether he answers it, we'll get him. It's a catch-22. So if Jesus says, yeah, pay the Roman tax, well, you kind of ticked off the Pharisees, and you kind of made the crowd a little disappointed because they hated paying the tax. You see, the taxes went towards a lot of terrible things, a lot of pagan temples and a lot of pagan practices, and really contrary to the, the Jewish belief. So if Jesus said, yes, pay the tax, straight out like that, he's discredited. But on the flip side, if Jesus said, don't pay the, Jewish, uh, don't pay the tax, well, then he's stamped as a Jewish rebel. Okay, arrest him. The Herodians are there. Let's take him away. So that was their goal. But Jesus was much smarter and way much more wise. See, he didn't play into their game. He didn't just beat around the bush, but he kind of went over the bush. And he really made a spiritual application, which is kind of fun for us to look at. So to understand this question and the scenario, we kind of need to understand the tax a little bit better. So they hand Jesus the Roman coin, which has Caesar stamped on it and his title on it, right? So here, we might pay taxes, but we don't really pay it in our quarters and dimes and stuff. We pay it with our, our checks or cards. And here, I have my debit card. It, some of you might see it. It's got a little puppy and a little kitten, and it's just absolutely ridiculous. It's super goofy, and I like it. When I was at the bank and they had all sorts of stuff, I said, give me that one card, because I knew it was going to get a lot of laughs from a lot of the cashiers. And they don't take me too seriously, so I think it's fun. <laughs> so... I said, give me the card, and, and I have a lot of fun with it, but I don't really want to just show you what's on the front. I really want to show you what's on the back. And this is interesting, because on the back it says, this card is the property of First Mid Bank and Trust issuer, and may be revoked or canceled at any time by using the card holder, that's me, is governed by terms, conditions, and amendments set by issuer. If found, please return to the First Mid Bank and Trust. So my name is on here. It says Scott P. Krumsick. You know, these are all my numbers that I have, right? But when you read on the back, it says this card is not my property. It's the property of the bank. So when Jesus was handed this coin, he said, look, Caesar's face is on here. His stamp is on here. This is Caesar's coin. This is really not your coin, even though you might have earned it. Give back to Caesar's word of Caesar. This is still Caesar's. You use Caesar's roads, pay his tax. You use his economy, pay his tax. If you're going to play by the king's rules, you're going to play in his game, you've got, you got to play by the king's rules, right? So Jesus was saying, yeah, this coin is an image bearer for the state, so give it back to the state. But that wasn't where he stopped. He said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but he goes on and says, give to God what belongs to God. And this is the cool part, and this is what I think is so neat, is that if this coin is an image bearer for the state, how much more are you and I an image bearer of God? You see, we're created in God's image, and we reflect God, and so have you given God your everything? Have you given back to God everything, right? I think we need to give God our heart, soul, and mind, our everything. And I want to come back to that again. But to keep the narrative going, the text keeps going, and we see the Sadducees enter the room, and they start asking about resurrection from the dead. So let's keep reading. It says in 23, this, that same day, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say, there is no resurrection from the dead. They posed this question, teacher. Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child. Who will carry on the brother's name? 
Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So his brother married the widow. But the second brother also died, and the third brother married her. This continued with all seven. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now, as to whether there will be a resurrection of the dead, haven't you ever read about this in the scripture? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. When the crowd heard this, they were astonished. So, you're the crowd. You're astonished. How did Jesus do this? How did he stump the Sadducees? We've never seen anything like this. So, there's a lot in this text. How do we really understand this? Why are the Sadducees asking about resurrection from the dead? Why are they asking about being married in heaven? And more importantly, why does Jesus come out swinging and say, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God? Well, we've got to look at the context. So, who are the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees are also religious leaders, kind of like the Pharisees, but they're a little bit of a different sect. They didn't necessarily believe in the same theology in some sense, and they actually was not, they didn't believe in, in a life after death. You see, to them, they thought that, hey, if God's pleased with me, then he'll bless me. He'll bless me with power, he'll bless me with money, with a good family, he'll bless me here and now. So for the Sadducees, everything was the here and now. They didn't really think about life after death, but the Pharisees had, and so they would always debate over this. The Sadducees also only recognized the first five books of the Bible, which are also known as the Pentateuch, which were written by Moses. So the Pharisees never had an argument by this because they didn't really have an argument with only those first five books. But Jesus did. As we see, Jesus uses Exodus 3.6 which is the account of Moses at the burning bush, when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, I am. You see, this was mind-blowing at the time because nobody had ever seen it that way. No one ever expounded on that way. And so the crowd was amazed, and they were astonished at his teaching. So here, Jesus not only humbled the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, he, he's just cleaning house. He's exposing all their hypocrisy because they all wanted to get rid of him. So, he's the God of the living, not the dead. Now, as we keep going into the, the third account, which is the greatest commandment, I want to read 34 through 40. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, don't miss this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. You see... Jesus didn't just stop and say, hey, the first greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He went on and said, the second is just as equally important. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. 
So, what is love? Well, let's try to understand this better. So, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Well, there was estimated about 613 laws or commandments, and so it was a little bit of a debate amongst themselves. And so they said, yeah, we'll, we'll probably trip them up with this one. Let's hear what Jesus has to say. Well, Jesus answers, obviously. And to better understand love, we look at 1 John chapter 2 through 3, and it talks about how um, if we love God, we'll keep his commands, and further, that love comes from God, and that um, really a person who doesn't love is still dead. Okay? So if you don't truly love the Father, if you don't truly know the love from the Father, you can't truly love your neighbor. So we first have to get that right, get that in order. And Jesus understood that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But the second is equally important. Once you do that, you need to then love your neighbor. We need to be overflowing with love to our neighbors. So Jesus knew this better than anyone because Jesus' example of him on the cross is the highest example of love, the highest example of sacrifice. We don't deserve that. So some of you might say, hey, Scott, this is all great. This sounds good. It's, you know, sometimes easier said than done, though. What, what if I can't love my neighbor as myself because I don't love myself? Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I think that's sad. I think if that's true, you don't truly see yourself through the eyes of God. Because in Genesis 1.26, you were created in God's image. There's a part of God intrinsically knit with you. And God wants to be a part of you. If you saw God through the eyes that he sees you, you'd understand, wow, I'm truly loved. And I don't deserve to be this loved. And so therefore, we just have this abounding love for others. To keep going in the fourth account, Jesus then asks his own question, right? So, verse 41 says, Then, surrounded by the Pharisees, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, He's the son of David. Jesus responded, Then why does David, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, call the Messiah, My Lord? For David said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? No one could answer him, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus shut them up. I think kind of, maybe more importantly, they didn't want to answer this question. Because at this point, Jesus was revealing his lordship and his messiahship. And this is super profound because they didn't want to accept that. You see, Jesus wasn't really, again, talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was talking to the crowd. He was talking to you. It's interesting because if we want to understand this text, we need to think about what are the Pharisees and the crowd thinking? Well, it was kind of widely accepted that the Messiah was going to come through the line of David, but they misunderstood. You see, they thought the Messiah was going to be a great king, come sit on the throne and really kind of just rule with an iron fist and take back Israel, right? But that wasn't what Jesus did, and that's not what him and the Father had planned. You see, Jesus came humbly as a baby, 
and he appealed to their heart. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees' heart was not softened. It was not humble enough to accept this. So that's really why Jesus was kind of appealing toward the crowd. So David understood this, though. He understood that the Messiah had to be his Lord. He had to submit himself under Jesus, which was kind of a cultural breakthrough because you don't really submit yourself to your son. You don't put yourself under your descendant. So what is David really saying here? Well, that's what he's saying. He submits himself to the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus. This is a really interesting narrative, and it's kind of fun to read through and kind of pick it apart and see Jesus kind of just backhand all the religious leaders, right? He exposes their hypocrisy, exposes their evil. But I want to ask you this question. Who are you in this story? I kind of alluded to this already. I think it's pretty easy for us to just assume, like, we're the crowd. We get to sit back, put our feet up, grab a bag of popcorn, and kind of just watch Jesus go to town and expose all their hypocrisy, and that's kind of fun to watch. It's a little passive. It doesn't really produce a whole lot unless it's really seeping in your own heart. Maybe, and I hope this is not you, some of you guys might be the Pharisees, the religious leaders. We all know that they're out there, people that come in just to discredit Jesus, that have evil intentions. There are people out there like that. And that's a scary place to be. I think thirdly, and this is kind of where I, you know, fall in the trap, is, is I kind of want to be like Jesus, you know? I want to be the guy. Yeah, I'm the guy. Yeah, I'm coming in and I'm exposing all their hypocrisy. I have the answers. I'm the guy. And that sounds really cool, but nine times out of ten, you're not the guy. <laughs> and that one time that you are, you better hope God's on your side and he's working through you because that's a huge responsibility. So, who are you in this passage? Who are you here? Well, for me, I want us to look at Mark 12, 28 through 34. I'll give you a second to flip there. Mark's account of this kind of expounds upon the greatest commandment question. It talks a little bit about that Pharisee that asked the question. And I think it's really profound. Listen to this. It says in 28, One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well, so he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, The most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel. The Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love the, your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Okay, Scott, we read this already. This is pretty much the same thing as the other account. True, but let's keep reading and pay attention. The teacher of religious law replied, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. 
realizing how much this man understood, Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. See, this Pharisee had a humble heart. Those scales that were around his heart were softening and falling off because he recognized Jesus to be true in what he said. Kind of when I think about the first account of the taxes, all these Pharisees are coming to him, oh, Jesus, you're a good teacher. You're just and you're right. And they're right in saying that, whether they believed it or not. But after a few conversations, this Pharisee kind of started to realize that might be true. There's something to this guy. Yeah, I know it's important to love my neighbor with all my heart, or God with all my heart, soul, and strength, and, and my neighbor as myself. Actually, you're kind of right. This is way more important than those burnt offerings I do. Because you're kind of right. It's more about my heart than, than my actions and my rituals. See, Jesus cared more about the heart than about the practices. Because if we had a right heart posture, our practices would reflect that. And we would love our neighbor as ourselves, And we would love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. As I was studying through this, I was talking to my grandfather, and he showed me this Mark passage, and he was starting to tear up, and he told me, Scott, every time I read this, I kind of just choke up a little bit. Because the humility of this Pharisee is, is inspiring. My grandfather is one of the most biblically literate people I've ever met taught Bible college and was a pastor for so many years. And I think he's on to something when he says that. We can look through this text and see all sorts of different people come into play. But if I'm being completely honest with myself, I kind of want to be like this Pharisee. And I know that's such a unique thing to say because Pharisees are bad guys, right? We don't, we don't want to be the Pharisees. They're not our example. They dealt with legalism, pride, all, the whole shebang. No, I want to be like this Pharisee, though, the one that recognized Jesus, recognized Jesus revealing his Messiahship and his Lordship, and humble enough to say, yeah, you're kind of right. How much do I want Jesus to say, wow, you understand a lot of this. You're not far from the kingdom of God. So, who are you in this story? Are you going to be willing to humble your heart? To the point that you say, yeah, I'm going to heed Jesus' words. I'm going to dig into the scripture and really know him. I want to understand. I want to know. So when the time comes, Jesus says, you're not just far from the kingdom of God. You're a part of the kingdom of God. If you guys hear nothing else today, hear this. I want to leave you with this question. Do you truly love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? And if so, how can you better love your neighbor? This is not a passive thing. You might be a part of the crowd, but you're still called to action. So, I challenge you. 